Well, Gateway, Merry Christmas. They're always so bad the first time, aren't they? They're just really bad at it. Okay, we'll do it one more time. Merry Christmas. Oh, they're always better the second time. that are watching via our online platform, we want to wish you a very Merry Christmas. And if you were visiting with us for the very first time or you were watching for the very first time, we are just so glad that you have decided to join us on this wonderful Christmas morning, despite the snow. (laughs) Yes, and on behalf of my wife Julie and myself, I just want to say thank you for being uh, the family of God to us. This is our third Christmas with Gateway, and we are just delighted and overjoyed that God had seen fit to bring us into this faith family and to join together with you. So thank you for being our family in real and tangible ways. And I think also in that, um, we also want to say thank you to all of you. Um, This has been an incredible year at this past year, and Gateway, you have stepped up to the plate, you have gone beyond, you have been the hands and feet of Jesus uh, in our community, and from the both of us and from Pastor Adam and all the staff here, we want to say thank you to you for that. Marcel, what are some of the things that Gateway has done over the last number of months? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a little tough to say exactly what we've all done, but just in the last month and a half when the flooding began, um, you have stepped up and we have prepared hundreds of meals for people to those that have been impacted um, by the flood just in the last month and a half or so. And then we also have our distribution center downstairs. We estimate that probably 600 plus families have been blessed through our distribution center downstairs. And over and above that, over 60 homes, give or take, or uh, people have been to to help with cleanup, uh, restore some homes and so forth. Absolutely phenomenal. You have also raised almost $200,000 for our Abbotsford Disaster Response Coalition and meeting some of the mid to long-term needs. You also raised $20,000 for the Canadian Food Grains Bank, which was quadrupled to become $80,000. We also, as a church, have received $90,000 in grants to meet needs in our community. And so I just want to say thank you for your generosity in the way that even as it has affected Uh, many of us have been affected personally, you've just stepped in in order to try to meet needs for others as well. So thank you so much for the way that you have been so incredibly generous, especially over these last couple of months. And that really is just in the recent last couple of months. That doesn't include our partnership with Archway Food Bank, um, which is a tremendous partnership that we have going. Um, And also the Extreme Weather Shelter. We still welcome 30-plus guests uh, into our gym every night on cold nights. Um, they come here, we serve them a meal, we give them a bed to sleep in. Um, we, don't talk, we have even talked about our 412 ministries of people that f- serve faithfully every week and life groups every week. Uh, it's quite, quite remarkable. There's a lot of churches that in the month of December they do uh, toy drives or baskets. But it's just so remarkable and amazing to me that all the time you are doing this. I just want to say thank you for being the hands and the feet of Jesus Thank you for serving and offering both help and hope in the midst of a community that has gone through a lot. So you have been the visible proclamation of Jesus in the way that you have been living out your life. And so on behalf of the pastors and the elders and the council of this church, we just want to say thank you for being Jesus to our community. And I'd like to say too, on behalf of my family, Monica, Janae, Aiden, and Ruben, we want to thank you for the privilege to serve here uh, at Gateway Church. Thank you for inviting us into your church family. 
So from our family to yours, we wish you a Merry Christmas. But you know, we have a tradition here at Gateway, and we like to keep up with traditions. And we have been doing this for how many years now? Two? This is our third year. Third year doing it. Ever since you became our lead pastor, we have been doing this. And this is where Pastor Justin and I tag team the Christmas message. And we're going to do the same today. And Pastor Justin, you pulled the shorter straw, so you have the joy of starting us out today. Yes, 40 minutes each, I've been told. So let's get going. All right, so if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to grab your Bible and find Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And while you're looking for that, for the sake of our guests, we have been in our Advent series in which we have been looking at the four themes of Advent. Love, joy, peace, and hope. And ultimately what we have been discovering is that only through Jesus, his arrival in human form and in his ministry, his life, and his going to the cross and his pulling off of Easter, do we finally find our fulfillment in hope. And so this is what everyone is looking for. The whole world is looking for hope, but ultimately it is only found in Jesus And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Mary and her response to the gospel. She's kind of a a stand-in for you and for me in the way that she responds. And so my encouragement to you is to just reflect on the things that she says and the response that she has upon recognizing that Jesus is coming from heaven to earth to put on flesh and to dwell among us. We sang a lot of Christmas songs already this morning, but like that familiar Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it says this, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's why Jesus came, to give all of us a second birth. And so here's what we're reading, Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46, these words. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So upon hearing the good news, we see that Mary, she says, my soul glorifies and my soul exalts the Lord. Now, this is language we we don't really use a whole lot, so, so what is she saying? Here's the first note that I put in your note sheet. Mary's response to the gospel primarily is from unbelief into joy. From unbelief into joy. So whenever you hear a biblical author use both the term soul and spirit back to back like that, instantly you should know that what they are trying to communicate What they're seeking to tell us is that she is totally gripped. She is overwhelmed. It's not as though she is saying, hey, my curiosity is piqued. I'd like to learn more about what this angel has just told me. I'd like to understand a little bit more of the the elements of what's going on in this story. She is overwhelmed with what is happening in front of her. But I also want to recognize for a moment that even for Mary, this happened progressively and in stages. And so for every single person in this room, all of us, um, I don't want to assume, are followers of Jesus. But for those of you who are, you know that your conversion story may be different than someone else's. And so in a sense, all of us find our way to Jesus on very different paths. 
And what we also know is it always, always, always starts with disbelief. Let me give you a couple examples of this. The first one that comes to mind is Paul, Paul Bunyan. And he is the author of the very well-known Pilgrim's Progress. And he has communicated, or had communicated numerous times, that he grappled with the Christian faith for over two years before coming to know Jesus. He said he was filled with sorrow. He was filled with grief before he came to recognize that Jesus was the Lord of the universe. Another example is C.S. Lewis. I talk about him a lot, the the author of the Narnia series. He rejected the Christian faith. He was a devout atheist, and only with grappling with his best buddy, J.R.R. Tolkien, did he eventually come to know Jesus. And so not all stories are like Mary's, where you witness an angel, and in that instant, in that moment, you are overcome with joy and with delight. But in a sense, when you really think about it, Even for Mary, her first response wasn't joy. It was actually fear and disbelief. It was fear and disbelief. Look, just a little bit earlier, if you went all the way back to verse 26, you will see that she was standing in front of an angel, and an angel tells her the good news that the Messiah is coming in human form, putting on flesh to dwell among us, and she says to the angel, this can't be. This is just too amazing. Like, it takes courage to tell an angel you're crazy. But that's where she was. A pretty bold statement. So, for even for people who now believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is Savior of the world, they had to, like Mary, start with this belief. In a sense, that's where all of us start. I absolutely love the way that pastor and author Timothy Keller puts this. This might be a little bit bold. But he makes this comment. He says, if a person doesn't find the gospel ridiculously impossible at first, they probably have never really come to grips with it. That's interesting. So he is suggesting that for every single person in this room, regardless of if you are a believer or not, there should at least at one point in time be a time in which you say, this is too remarkable. I I can't believe it. Now let me give you an example of this. Let's suppose for a moment that uh, there's a distant relative who is a multi-billionaire and you are the only surviving relative. And so he dies, and he leaves an estate to you of $10 billion. So some guy comes up to you in a suit and a briefcase, and he says, congratulations, you have $10 billion to your name. What's your first response going to be? In a sense, it would be kind of crazy for you to start off by saying, oh yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. I knew there would come a day when I would get $10 billion. No, you're probably looking around for the cameras, Right? Some sort of TikTok person or some YouTube phenomenon, some influencer, there's cameras all around, some sort of spoof or gag. Right? You're like, where's the joke? And so in the same way, for those of us who encounter the gospel message, it almost always starts with disbelief. Mary's response is rational. She says, that's impossible. It's too good to be true. It's too amazing. I can't believe it. And if you've ever responded that way, then, or if you haven't responded that way before, then you probably haven't fully considered what the gospel actually 
says. But here's what we see next. From unbelief, what happens? At least for Mary, comes a receptivity. Not full-on acceptance, but a willingness to ponder it and to consider it a little bit more. Maybe after looking around, like that example of the $10 billion in the briefcase, you see that there's no cameras all around. You see the briefcase. You see the paperwork that's laid out in front of you. And you start to determine whether or not it is true or it is untrue. And at least for Mary, here's what she sees. She has this desire within her heart that she wants it to be true. But at exactly the same time, she also knows that without the gospel... The world doesn't make more sense, it makes less sense. Look, we've been talking about this for the last four weeks. We see that for every single person in the world, even for what you might call a secular person, an atheist, someone who doesn't believe that there was a creator of the universe, who doesn't believe that Jesus rose again from the dead at Easter, at exactly the same time, they will say, life matters. Human dignity matters. Love is important. Everyone has this intrinsic sense that love is valuable and life is valuable. Where do you get that from? If we're all just kind of randomly here by by chance, why is it that everyone in the world believes that every life has human dignity and that love is ultimately the most powerful force in the universe? And so for Mary, she says, there's something in my heart that longs for this to be true. Now, here's the point. People respond to Jesus in a variety of different ways. But it always starts with disbelief. It could be negative disbelief. Like James, the half-brother of Jesus, who rejects his own brother being the Lord of the universe. Or like the Apostle Paul who tries to snuff out Christianity because he is so vehemently opposed to it. Or you could have a a positive disbelief, like Mary or like Paul Bunyan. But that's where it always starts, from disbelief, but then leading toward joy. But also for Mary, it leads from unbelief to an incredible surprise by hope. Thirty years ago, this Christmas, Mark Lowry wrote the very beloved Christmas hymn, Mary, Did You Know? And some of you here this morning may know the hymn or the song, some of you may not, and it goes something like this. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know? And the song just kind of keeps going and it keeps going and it keeps asking Mary all these questions about the young baby that's growing in her womb. Now, I was not there 2,000 years ago, even though some days it may look like it. I was not, I am not an expecting mother, so I don't fully understand all that Mary was thinking when the angel Gabriel came to her and said, you are going to conceive and you are going to have a son and you are going to name him the son of God. But my assumption is that Mary knew a few things about what was going to happen. Mary was probably quite familiar with the reality of morning sickness. She probably understood, perhaps through others, the joy of feeling the baby kick in the womb for the very first time and so forth. 
But I wonder if Mary really knew what was about to come, that the baby that was growing inside of her would turn water into wine right in front of her eyes. That this baby was going to make the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. And that when the angel Gabriel said to her that her son will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, that his kingdom will never end, that it meant that her son was going to die a brutal death on the cross and then be raised three days later. I don't know what Mary knew. But we do know through scripture that Mary did not ask for this high calling to be upon her life. Luke 1 tells us that Mary was highly favored. And even with that simple but yet very profound greeting, she was deeply troubled. She wondered about it all. Wouldn't we all have? And then we have Mary's wonderful and humble response to God's call in her life. Perhaps still in that wonder stage, she says to the angel Gabriel, she says to him, may your word be fulfilled and in that wonder, as it continues, she so eloquently expresses that in her song where it says this, My soul rejoices in my God, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Mary knows that the baby that's growing inside of her is not about her. She knows that she is just a humble servant of the Lord her God, the God whom she loves that this is not about her doing, but it's all about God's doing. She knows that in the midst of her brokenness, that God is about to do something so phenomenal in her life. That in the midst of the darkness, there is this little hope, this glimmer of hope. Imagine for a moment, just imagine, if Mary tried to alter the situation. Imagine how the Christmas story would be so different if Mary started to argue with the angel Gabriel. How Luke 1's narrative of the story would be completely different. We would know a completely different story today if Mary argued with Gabriel and tried to alter the plans of God's life for her. You know, looking back, thinking about that possibility, some of us would even think it's absurd, it's ridiculous. And somebody would think, perhaps even scandalous to think that we would ponder something other than the text. But Mary's words in verse 37 ring true. For no word of God ever fails. And you know, I think when we look at it from Mary's perspective, we can just all shout amen to that, can't we? Amen. Because it applies to Mary. But what if that applies to us? Many people in church today believe that we can control our faith. That we can control the favor of God in our life. One might say, you know what, if I attend church every week, especially on Christmas and Easter, that's going to gain me the favor of God. You know, if I memorize the creeds and, the, and, and so forth and know at heart, that's going to gain favor with God. Or if I just volunteer in the right ministry, say the right things, do the right type of living, that is going to gain favor with God. You know, these are all good things that we need to do because it deepens our love for Jesus Christ. That is the outpouring of our faith in Jesus Christ. But if we for any moment make the assumption that those are the things that are going to gain favor with God, then we have so misunderstood Mary's testimony today. Where's the wonder in it all if we can control it all? We think it ludicrous 
that Mary would control the events of her life when it comes to God's leading. But yet we so very quickly want to control the events in our life that God wants to lead. So we can learn just a few things from this young lady. We learn that in the midst of the unknowns of life, rejoice in God. You know, Mary had no idea what was in store for her. There are so many unknowns for her moving forward. She was going to be the mother of the Son of God. That's a pretty big deal, I think. Her mind must have been filled and been racing with 101 different questions about what is this all going to mean for me and what is it going to mean for Joseph? She didn't have all the answers. Gabriel didn't give her all the answers. And yet scripture tells us that Mary stated, my soul rejoices in my God, my Savior. We learn that if God's word is true for Mary, it's true for us today. God's word doesn't change. Hebrews 13 says Jesus Christ is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. If we believe scripture to be true, then we do not have the permission to say that the promises were true for Mary, but they're not true for me, and they're not true for you. God's word is true for Mary, and you can rest assured they're true for you today. We also learn that if we focus our faith 100% on Jesus, we will marvel Always marvel at his grace. You know, Mary set her own personal sin aside and she gazed upon the face of Jesus. She submitted to the will of God in her life. You know, when we get rid of our own agendas and focus on God, submitting our entire lives to God, as difficult as that may be sometimes, we will always be in awe and we will always marvel at God's grace. And that is a grace that never ends. And then finally we learn that in the midst of our darkness, there is a hope. There is always a hope. You know, Mary was not perfect. And yet God used Mary to do unbelievable purpose to bring glory to God. In Mary's imperfectness, there was this light of hope that pointed to God's redeeming work in her You know, we are not perfect, and yet God can do unbelievable things in and through you that points you and others to the saving, redeeming work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In you, in your darkness, through the working of the Holy Spirit, there's a hope. There's a hope that surpasses all understanding. You know, we can easily sing the song, Mary, Did You Know? Because it's about Mary. We like singing those type of songs at Christmas, don't we? But imagine for a moment if Mary's name wasn't used in that song, but it was your name. Did you know? Did you know that the baby boy came to save you? Therein lies the hope. And Mary moves from unbelief to overwhelming love. I don't know about you, but I'm still marveling at Marcel's singing ability. Jason? My goodness. Sign me up. Get him on there. Joking. I'm not joking. Luke chapter 1, verse 50. I want you to read this with me. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. 
he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. I'm really fascinated by that first section in verse 50 when when Mary says, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Interestingly, those are the same words that we read in Psalm chapter 130, and it says this, I fear you because you have forgiven all of my sins. Isn't that interesting? So both Mary and the psalmist of Psalm 130 suggests that for those of us who are in a right relationship with God, for those of us who love God, in essence, we fear God. Now, that's a little bit interesting because then we start to wonder to ourselves, like, okay, is that our motivation? Like, are we afraid of God, therefore we obey? Right? He's going to smite us and therefore we, we better comply. And Marcel just highlighted that. Are we motivated to serve God because he's dictatorial and if we don't, then he's going to smite us? Is that what's being communicated here? Look really closely. One of the biggest differences between a Christian and let's just call a religious person is the way that we deal with the love of God and our motivation for fear. So here's one way to think about this. One person fears the law of God and the other person fears the love of God. See, fear of the law, here's what it does. It it says, I'm scared of being hurt. I'm scared of being harmed. I'm scared that God's going to smite me if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. Therefore, what we end up doing is functioning the same way that the elder brother in Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son, the way that he operates. What does he do? He stays home. He complies. He honors the will of the father. But what is his motivation? He doesn't love the father. He loves himself. He doesn't want a relationship with the Father. He wants the Father's things. He's ultimately motivated out of trying to preserve what he wants and what he cares about. But the Christian sees things differently. They no longer fear the law because as the Apostle Paul says, there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. For Christ has defeated the power of sin and death through his resurrection. And so we no longer have to be afraid of the law because of love made visible. Jesus who put on flesh and dwelt among us, who went to the cross, scorning its shame. Because of what Christ has done, we no longer fear the law. So I want you to think of an example of this. Consider any uh, loving relationship, whether it be between spouses or between a father and a son or a mother and a daughter, uh, a parent-child relationship. You know that in these loving relationships, if they are functioning properly, you're not afraid of them. Right? The parent isn't afraid of the child. The child's not afraid of the parent. The husband's not afraid of the wife. The wife's not afraid of the husband. Right? They're, they're in a perfect, loving relationship with one another. So when you are in that kind of relationship, what's your fear? The fear now isn't for the repercussions or what they might do to you. The only fear you have, in a sense, is disappointing them, harming them, 
disserving them, hurting or harming them. And in the same way, that's what Mary is highlighting here for us. That's what we see in this. Out of love comes this longing and this desire to invest in the relationship in order that it might thrive. So it's not a fear of being hurt. It's a fear of hurting and harming. And so that's the difference. When the gospel comes into your life, it changes everything. The Christian says, look at everything that Christ has done for me. Look at the sacrifice that he made. Look at the cross and the way that Jesus stretched out his hands. And he willingly stayed. He didn't have to. In a moment's notice, he could have snapped his fingers and a legion of angels would have came and saved him. But he stayed. He stayed for me. And because of that, I am so overwhelmed with gratitude in my heart. And so now I have a new motivation. I no longer fear the law. I fear the fact that I might spit on the cross. I fear the fact that I might take the the grace and the mercy that Jesus has given me and trample it under my feet. And so that's the great motivation of my life now. That's the radical difference between how the world lives and how a religious person lives and how a Christian lives. So here's the real mark of a Christian. When you find out that because of what happened to Jesus Christ that you can no longer be condemned and that there's no punishment for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are now unleashed for this energetic, zealous, life-giving kind of love. And that's the way that we live our life. And I know Marcel and I, we started at the beginning by commending you, but I just want to say it again. I think that's the reason why the church is so well-equipped for catastrophes. Because the whole world looks at everything else that's going on, and they're filled with hopelessness. But what do you do? Even in the midst of your own tragedy, even in the midst of your own pain, you're looking to the needs of others because, as we've already discussed, when it comes to peace, peace is not the removal of the waves. It's the stability of the rock. And in light of what Jesus has done for me, I now have overwhelming peace. And so you've lived out your peace. You've been the hands and feet of Jesus because of the promises of God. And so, there's a fear that arises out of the law. It says, obey or you will die. And then, there's a fear that arises out of love. And it says, Christ has already died. So lovingly obey. I mean, what would stop you from obeying when you can see the glory of Jesus like that? And that's Mary. That's what she sees And this overwhelming love produces within us a fourth and final motivation from unbelief to assurance through peace. Do you ever have it where your devotional life goes in waves? It comes and then it goes. There are these weeks where you are in deep devotion to God. You're reading your Bible, you're fervent in your prayer, 
you're reading the Bible and praying with your family, with your kids, with your spouse, and you got a good rhythm going, you are feeling tremendously close to God, you have this routine that you just want to keep going forever. Do you have those moments? Then there are those other times in life where it seems like your devotional life has hit this desert. Your devotional life kind of dries up. There's just nothing happening. And a long time has passed since you opened up your Bible or you bend down on knee to pray to God. It has been a long time since you committed yourself to prayer. You slipped one day, then two days, and a week has passed before you even opened up God's word to pray. Your prayer life is kind of kind of blah. Have you been there? The good times come, the good times go, and the good times come back again. And I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I am currently in one of those dry spells when it comes to my devotional life. I'd love to stand here in front of you today and say in good conscience that I'm fervently in prayer every day, but I can't in good conscience tell you that. And that's probably not something you're going to want to hear from the guy preaching your Christmas message this morning. But it's the reality of my devotional life at the present. I so badly want it to change. I want things to be different, right? You take a little step back and then it's kind of something creeps in a place. Perhaps it's just the busyness of life. Or perhaps it's the busy work schedule. Or maybe it's family life. A family crisis comes in. Or maybe even perhaps for some of us we are just tired parents. And each one of these things and so many more can, can weasel its way in between a healthy a devotional life and the possibility of you stepping away from your devotional life. At least it does for me. And after some time, we wonder to ourselves, why does God seem so far away? And we question God and say, God, where did you go? Where did you go? And Mary's song so wonderfully Reminds us, listen again to the close of how Mary closes her song. She says this, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. Just as he has promised our ancestors. Mary at such a young age understood the faithfulness of God from generation to generation. She looked back through history and she saw the hand of God weaving through his, the lives of his people, keeping his promise over and over again. And here's what I love about this. Abraham and his descendants have not always had a vibrant devotional life with God. There are times in their lives that they have also stepped back. Their devotional life went in waves just like ours does. Just take some time to read the Old Testament and you will see how they have stepped away and how God graciously comes back and he keeps pulling them back and he says always to them, you are mine, always. But the question I think that we need to ask is this, who stepped away? Who stepped away? Did God look at his people Israel and he looked down on them he said, you know what, they're in a bit of a dry spell. So I'm going to be a good God and I'm just going to step back and I'm going to give my people a little bit of time to figure this thing out. Absolutely not. God is not the one who stepped back. In fact, God is the one who has moved in. God is the one that keeps saying, come on back. Come on back. God is faithful from generation to generation despite the shortcomings of his people, despite my shortcomings. God is merciful. 
You know, in my current dry spell of devotion, Mary reminds me that God is not the one who stepped back, but it is I who has taken the backward step. God did not leave. He is forever faithful to his people. He is ever faithful to me. He is forever faithful to you. What a comfort that brings, doesn't it? What a comfort it brings to a troubled heart. You know, when we sing those good old classic hymns like, How Great Thou Art, When Peace Like a River, Great is Thy Faithfulness, Praise God from Whom All Blessings Flow, and so on, I gain a tremendous amount of peace in my heart. And I am ready to belt out those songs. I may, when, have those, when we sing those, have the same joy that Mary sings when she sang her song. Because it reminds us of the faithfulness of God. When I think for a moment that my great-grandparents sang those songs. My grandparents, my parents sang those songs. My wife and now my children sing those songs from generation to generation. We're singing of the praise and the glory and the faithfulness of God. Man, that brings hope. That brings peace. When we take time to look back in order to guide our future, we can rest assured in the faithfulness of God. Mary needed to look back to understand the faithfulness of God in her life when the angel Gabriel said to her, you are going to conceive and you are going to give birth to a child and you are going to call him Jesus. It was God coming closer to his wayward people, providing a way of salvation. God did not step back. Instead, God stepped into the mess. He steps into our desert, and God provides a way forward. And he provided a way forward that only he could do through a baby. And this baby would grow in wisdom and in stature. He was 100% God, and at the same time, he was 100% man. And he lived a life that you and I could never live, obeying God perfectly. And then he died a death that you and I should have died, conquering death once and for all. That is Jesus Christ. That he is our way maker, he is our miracle worker, our promise keeper, our never-ending light in darkness. As the song says, thanks be to God for his faithfulness and his promises. That's why we can experience in the desert of our life, in those dry moments, that we can continue to experience the peace of God because we know. We know that God is faithful to his promise, that he keeps calling us back over and over again, that he steps into our mess, and God is the one that takes us through to the other side. It is and it always will be what God has done and continues to do week after week, month after month, Moment after moment and breath after breath, it's for the glory of God, because of God. That is why we celebrate Christmas, the arrival of the promised peace. You know, it is our prayer that you will experience the peace of Jesus Christ today and every day. And many of you here have, many of you watching have experienced the peace of Jesus Christ. And as pastors, as counsel of this church, we rejoice and we give thanks to God daily for you. But there are some here today, perhaps in this auditorium or watching, that have not experienced the peace of Jesus. If that is you, know this. Jesus Christ came so that you may experience a peace that only he is able to give. He has not stepped away from you, but he is reaching out his hand and he's saying, take hold. Take hold, grab my hand so that you can experience the peace and the joy 
and the love and the hope of my son, Jesus Christ. If you're ready to take hold of his hand today, please do so. And if you want to walk that journey with us as pastors, please reach out to me. Reach out to Pastor uh, Justin, Pastor Adam. We would love to walk this journey with you. Even if you're just curious as to what that's going to look like, please. Today, today and every day, we celebrate Jesus Christ. Glory to God in the highest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the testimony of Mary. We thank you that we could spend just a few moments this morning reflecting on that and how that applies to us today in the here and the now. God, we thank you for the love, the joy, the heap, the peace and the joy that you provide through your son, Jesus Christ. God, in, in, in the, the midst of all our celebrations and the laughter and the joy and the fellowship around our dinner tables, God, may we enjoy not just the food and the company, but may we enjoy the fellowship and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, that came as a child so that we may be saved. But God, we know today that the Christmas story does not end tonight at midnight, but it continues until Jesus grows, until he dies, until he rises again from the dead for the complete forgiveness of all our sins, for our salvation. God, we say thank you. We say thank you, and we never forget. May we always live in the joy and in the peace of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name.